Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable, because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, Matt. So, do you know what it feels like when you have to pee? Uh, Yeah. Okay, uh, fill me and tell me if I got a. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted. See to... a- again, <laughs> he doesn't. He, he he warned me this time that he had a joke, but he didn't tell it. Yeah. So and, you know, I don't. I don't want you to get your laugh out before we start uh... recording. <laughs> so what's been going on, man? Oh, not a whole lot. Went to a Foo Fighters concert last week, and uh, it was pretty awesome. They played for three hours. Man, uh, you know what? I knew y'all were going to that, and I got on uh, some website and looked to see how much tickets were. Yeah. I was like, eh, nope, I'm yeah, out. Yeah, no. This is the makeup for when they canceled last year. Yeah. Uh, so they made it up to us by playing for three freaking hours. Oh, God. So it, it started at like 8-something, eight 8-10 eight or so, and went till after 11. Yeah. Um. Now, Dave did not break his leg this time, so we're all good. <laughs> I saw her. He almost did. Though. He almost did in one one other show, yeah. Um, didn't have any mishaps like that at this show, so that was good. But uh, I was up for about 22 hours that day. Jeez. So I I was not doing good the next day. Oh, no. I was just dead. But I feel better now, so we're doing great. All right. Um, also, something else that's happened. We are Almost. We are less than 900 downloads at this point, recording on Wednesday. Yeah. From hitting 100K. That's un- unreal. It, it's absolutely unbelievable. So <sighs> we may hit this 100K before this episode goes live. That's true. And if it does, then we will post a thing yeah. on the weekend that says, hey, the drawing is up. So go enter. Um, if. You don't have social media. Just go check our website this weekend. Yeah. Go over yeah, to. It'll be on the website. Yep. It'll be in the Facebook group. Yep. We'll give you plenty of warning. Absolutely. Um, it's graveyardpodcast.com. Go over there and check it out. And there will be a sign up where you can enter your email address, your name, and your shirt size. Because since Matt won't let me give away just some <laughs> crap around my house, and I don't understand why he won't let me do that, but. Petrified dog poop. Yeah, in got, a box. I got this. I got this box over here that kind of looks like a book. I could give you that. The book box. I like those. Um, but since he won't let me do that, what, what we're gonna do is the graveyard box is going to include stickers, buttons, a tumbler that says "Graveyard Tales" across it, a shirt in whatever size you put on the website when you sign up, and a poster. And I have a poster hanging on the wall right here by our yeah. recording desk that we're looking at right now. And you're going to like it. Yeah, it's cool. You are going to like it. Um, and so we're going to get all that stuff together. And we're going to, uh, once we get that drawing going, we're going to figure out when an end date is. And we'll let y'all know on social medias when the end date is that you need to have your entry in. And then we'll do a randomized drawing and whoever wins, we will contact you for your shipping address and then we will ship it out to you. Um, So make sure this weekend you check that website. Yep. So I want to take the time just real quickly to give a special shout out to two people who go way beyond 
helping us make this show a success. And that's Ashley and Amanda. Now, you've heard us mention their names on the show. Um, They're our girlfriends, respectively. Um, But both of these ladies have put in a lot of extra work to make sure that our listeners have the the best possible experience. Ashley designed and and runs our website. She makes sure that all the episodes are there and they're up to date and there's upcoming events like the 100,000 download giveaway. They're all set up and they're running smoothly. And she helps manage our merch. Um, and our promos and Amanda, she manages our Patreon. She makes sure that the updates there are timely and that all of you lovely, generous folks get, get all the goodies that, that come with me and a Patreon for us. Um, and you know, you, if you've gotten in our Facebook group or if you've sent us direct messages, there's a really good chance that you've talked to Amanda cause she'll respond. Uh, if you send us a message while we're recording or while we're, we're doing research or something and we're not available, um, so she takes care of that. They both help us with show prep, with research, ideas for episodes, and they both serve as administrators in our in our Graveyard Tales Facebook group. So if you ever have a question about something, uh, hit them up. You know, so you know, talking to them, they they know about everything that that we know. Um, so Ashley and Amanda, here's to you. Thank you so much for yes. all the help. We we couldn't really we really couldn't do it without you. No. Absolutely, Matt's absolutely right. Thank, thank you, ladies, for everything. And the graveyard wouldn't be the graveyard without you two. Um, you know, we may be the voices on the show, but they're the they're the brains behind. <laughs> no, the, no doubt. Yeah, behind keeping this running. Um, <laughs> so we certainly couldn't do it without them. Um, other thank yous that we have is we want to thank you for the iTunes reviews. Um, so a few that we've got here recently is Kate in Actuality, J.R.O. Maker, Limbone 63, Dreamy 68, Ape Doctor, <laughs> Troy 1995-12, and Tatlow 2. So we want to thank all of y'all for the reviews and the rating on iTunes. It means a whole bunch to us, yeah. and it really helps get us out there so that we can be seen and you know get suggested to other people. Um, and that has helped us get close to this 100K That's right. download thing. That's right. So before we get into tonight's episode, which I'm sure all of y'all know what it is, but we're going to wait till after this break. Let's take a quick potty break. Let's hear from one of my favorite companies, Cryptid Crate and True Crime Fan Club. All right, son. Let's start from the beginning. Where were you the night Mrs. Johnson was murdered? Like I told Officer Greenlee. I was walking back from the post office after picking up my latest cryptid crate. Then what happened? Nothing much. Just took my cryptid crate home. There you go again with this cryptid crate business. What in the devil is a cryptid crate? Cryptid crate is a monthly box subscription service for fans of cryptozoology and the paranormal. Each month you receive a box filled with various cryptid themed items ranging from t-shirts and books to documentaries and collectibles. And you get this cryptid crate at the store? No, sir. You can get it delivered to your mailbox simply by visiting www.cryptidcrate.com. It's quick and easy and shipping is free anywhere in the U.S. Mailbox, huh? Then why did you have to go to the post office to get it? Because I'm... I... Sounds like there might be a leak in your alibi there, son. I think I have all I need. Greenlee, open the door. One more thing. 
Do you think Cryptid Crate delivers to prison? Hey guys, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my podcast is for you. It's a podcast for the ultimate true crime enthusiast, giving you a glimpse into the life and crimes of the most demented minds. You won't want to miss an episode. All right, we're back at it. Matt, what are we doing tonight? Tonight, we are going to do our follow-up to one of our most popular episodes. In fact, it was one of our earliest episodes. Mm -hmm. Like two or three, I think. Yeah, we are going to do a sequel to our Urban Legends episode. So this is Urban Legends 2, the sequel. (laughs) Urban Legends again. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so we've, uh, we've collected some pretty, uh, pretty creepy, uh, urban legends this time, maybe even a little bit creepier than the ones we did the last time. Maybe so. So, um, hopefully, uh, it scares the pants off some of you guys and we got some fun ones thrown in there too. So. Right. All right. So in researching for this show, um, I was talking to Mr. Forrest Burgess and he, he mentioned one that he grew up with and I thought, you know. I've heard of that one too. That mm-hmm. that it's one that's been probably every state has some version of this. And it's the legend of the hook man. So it's real short, but I'll read it out because I think it's pretty interesting. I think they've mentioned it on their show before as well, yeah. but um it it's the hook man. And a teenage boy drove his date to a dark and deserted lover's lane for a makeout session. He turned on the radio for mood music leaned over to whisper in the girl's ear and began kissing her. Minutes later, the mood was broken when the music suddenly stopped mid-song. After a moment of silence, an announcer's voice came on, warning in an ominous tone that a convicted murderer had just escaped from the state's insane asylum, which happened to be located within a half mile of where they were parked, and urging that anyone who notices a man wearing a stainless steel hook in place of his missing right hand should immediately report his whereabouts to the police. Yeah, that that holds true to today. Right. If, if you see a hook man, <laughs> tell somebody. Just wander around. Yeah. Sorry to any pirates out there, but if I see you, I'm turning you into the cops. Sorry. So the girl became frightened and asked to be taken home. The boy, feeling bold, locked all the doors instead and, assuring his date they would be safe, attempted to kiss her again. She became frantic and pushed him away, insisting that they leave. Relenting, the boy peevishly jerked the car into gear and spun its wheels as he pulled out of the parking space. When they arrived at the girl's house, she got out of the car and, reaching to close the door, began to scream uncontrollably. The boy ran to her side to see what was wrong, and there, dangling from the door handle, was a bloody hook. (laughs) Man, I've heard that. Yeah. I mean, like, since I was a kid. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it and, was always one of those that you you know when somebody's got to sit around at the around the campfire that was one that yep. was always told and and you know it's been it's been around for decades yeah and it's just one of those classics so oh, yeah. when he mentioned it I was like yeah yeah we'll do that one because that's fun you yeah. know it's a it's a fun one to start out with but you know when you're a kid you believe it oh sure I mean you totally you buy into it you're like oh my god yeah. We can't go parking, you know. Yeah. I think that was it was done just so teenagers wouldn't go parking. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, yeah. there's so. always a moral 
There some is. Of see, it, it goes back to what we've said before. Even if scaring the crap out of you is the way to get it across. Right. <laughs> Don't be doing the nasty in a deserted road because Hookman's going to get that's you. That's right. That's right. Okay. So I guess it's my turn. It is. Okay. So I found this. This is cool. I had not ever heard of this. This is, this is the curse of the petrified forest. So when you visit the National Petrified Forest in Northeast Arizona, uh, most people are really enamored by the beauty and the uniqueness of petrified wood. Uh, and it's been that way for centuries. You know, since since first explorers found it, you know, it's it's been that way. It, it didn't just happen anytime real soon. And the first routes were blazed through that region in the mid-1800s, and uh, travelers have long taken pieces of the forest with them, you know, as keepsakes. Um, most of the time, you know, it would be just here or there, you know, oh, this is this is beautiful. This is cool, you know. And they took it with them, but some settlers would take, you know, wagonfuls of it, huh. you know, because hell, it's something different, and right. you know, I, I can maybe I can sell this, yeah, you know, somewhere else. But since the time that the Petrified Forest became a national monument, it is illegal to remove any specimen of petrified wood. How many times am I going to mess up petrified wood during this story? <laughs> Drinking but game. It, it is illegal to remove any piece of petrified wood from the park. So today, theft of petrified wood results in a fine. But does that stop people from doing it? No, it doesn't. So anyone who decides they're going to try to sneak a piece of wood out of the forest, they may not have heard of the curse. And the curse is that anyone who steals from the petrified forest is doomed to have numerous maladies affect their life. Okay. So 200 million years ago, these huge trees and, and rich vegetation were abound in Northeast Arizona. And at that time, the region was really a tropical wetland with streams and rivers. So during these heavy rains, the waterways would flood, sweeping the fallen trees into the sandy, sandy floodplains. So later, volcanic lava destroyed the forest and the remains were embedded into settlement comprised of volcanic ash, mud, and water. This is the history lesson of this part. <laughs> so millions of years later, the petrified logs were revealed by erosion. So in the 1930s, visitors to the forest began to report that after taking a piece of petrified wood from the park, they were seemingly cursed with bad luck. And the curse continues today, and it's now a part of the park's history. In fact, there is a room dedicated to the hundreds of cursed thieves in the Rainbow Forest Museum at Petrified Forest National Park, from divorce to being jailed, medical conditions to car problems, unemployment to generally terrible lives, and even death. <laughs> the Petrified Forest National Park has received bucket loads of confessions, tales of tragedy, and returned petrified wood from those who lived to regret it. This is much like taking Robert the Doll's picture without his permission. Right. So, like the curse of the Hope Diamond or, you know, the, the ruined lives of those who have tampered with Egyptian pharaohs, bad luck comes to those who possess stolen petrified wood from the park, prompting thousands of people to send it back. So, for decades... The forest has received pilfered samples in the mail returned by visitors who regret having stolen them. And notes are included. 
One visitor described a piece of petrified wood he had taken more than 10 years earlier. He says it was a great challenge sneaking it out of the park. And since that time, though, nothing in my life has gone right. (laughs) (laughs) And another one pleaded, my life has been totally destroyed since we've been back from vacation. Please put these back so my life can get back to normal. Let me start over again. And these are real notes, folks. These, <laughs> these aren't made up. These are real notes that people have sent back to this forest. Uh, another one says, take these miserable rocks and put them back. They have caused pure havoc in my love life. <laughs> <laughs> at, the part, at, the, at the southern entrance to the park is a pile of conscious rocks, and it is not the only one. There are other piles throughout the park. Unfortunately, once the rocks are removed, they cannot be put back in the park because they are out of scientific context. The park is a thriving site for archaeological, geological, and paleontological research. Moving rocks and other artifacts affects the value of the scientific study, hence why it is illegal. Um, but in the, uh, in the Rainbow Forest Museum, the display is called The Mystery of the Conscious Wood. A large piece of petrified wood sits on a bench. It was returned by a man who said he stolen it 66 years ago. A three-ring binder sits beneath the display that contains letters from all over the world, compromising some 1,200 pages of guilt-ridden letters. The oldest conscience letter dates back to 1935. Wow. (laughs) So I I read that and I thought, that is is pretty stinking cool. Um, You know, that, that, you know, for one, hey, you know, who's going to? Who's going to know if I take this little piece of petrified mm-hmm. wood? Somebody knows. Right. Somebody knows. <laughs> the The spirit of the forest knows. That's right. <laughs> All right. So the next one I have is it comes from the UK. It's called the red cap or the bloody cap. So some of y'all in the UK may know this legend. Um, I didn't know it until I started looking it up. And I thought, you know, It'll be a cool one to pass along because not only is it a cool legend, but it's also one that I don't think many of us here in the States know. Yeah, I've never heard of Um, it. And it'll be kind of cool to, you know, spread the knowledge. So that's what we do here. We spread the knowledge. we spread the knowledge. We're knowledge spreaders. Graveyard tales. Spread the knowledge. That's our (laughs) next t-shirt. New tagline. Right. (laughs) Spreading the knowledge. All right. So the red cap or the bloody cap. Now, he's a goblin or a fae in English folklore. And don't worry, we've got an episode down the down the line here on fae. So if yeah. you if you like that kind of stuff, just hold on. We'll get to it. Yeah, now, I've got I've got an aunt named Faye. Yeah, did, or, we're not doing a show about her. Are we? No, uh, I actually talked to her and she turned us down. So oh, we've, okay. we're having a keeping this the name. Some, this is somebody totally different. Right. We're keeping the name, but we're having to move to some <laughs> other research. So she wasn't very nice to me either. We need to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's a goblin or a fae in English folklore, and he lives in the ruins of old castles or old fortified towers where bloody battles have occurred and many lives were lost. In these towers and castles and stuff, there was just a ton of bloodshed. So keep that in mind. Now, he's said to inhabit the castles that are along the Anglo-Scottish border. So if... You know where that is? If not, doesn't really matter. It it doesn't pertain. It's just where he kind of lives. That's just where it is. Yep. So they said that the red cap looks like a tiny old man with long, dirty hair, 
red eyes, sharp, hideous talons for fingers, long, skinny fingers, and protruding teeth. His boots are made of iron, and the cap he wears on his head is said to be made of dried human skin. He carries a pike staff in his left hand. Now, the red cap is a vicious creature who loves blood, and the cap that he wears on his head is red because it's soaked with blood. And if the cap ever dries out, he will die. So he has to keep soaking his little human skin cap in the blood of his victims. Now, he preys on travelers who pass through the area. He will push boulders on top of them to stun them and then kills them with his iron staff. He drags their bodies back to his lair and strings them from the ceiling and collects all their blood for his cap. Now, in spite of the heavy iron boots, the red cap is very fast and is almost impossible to outrun. The only way to protect yourself against the red cap is by repeating words of scripture or holding up the cross. He will then utter a dismal yell and vanish in flames. And all he will leave behind is a large tooth on the spot where he was last seen. So be careful going to broken down old. <laughs> you know, if you're going ghost hunting in some of these castles that we talk about. Yeah. Be careful of the red cap because he might get you. See, in my head, I'm seeing this little dude wearing uh, like a baseball cap. He's got like a Yankees hat. Okay. And he's soaking it in blood. It's made of skin. Yeah, just wringing so. this Yankees cap full of blood. And, you know. <laughs> I don't know why. It's, I know that's not what it is, but that's what's in my head. <laughs> All you Yankees he's, fans he's out there. He's carried around this big iron stick, and he looks like a little baseball player. Yep. It's you know? it's just, it's not a stick. It's an iron baseball bat. That's right. You know, with a Yankees cap on, and he's just dripping blood. and. We have just completely adulterated this legend. Yeah, we, you have, you did this. Oh, that's right, I did it. I did it. So you're welcome. All, all y'all now can think of this little little creature, you know, dressed up like a little miniature baseball player, killing people and soaking their his hat in their blood. Yep. So there you go. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> oh, see, we told you these were going to get creepy, but there's some of them are kind of funny. Yeah, can't help it. Creepy, and then Matt made it funny. This one's not funny. This it's one, not. this one's real creepy. Dang it! So we're we're uh, we're we're keeping it international. So we're gonna we're gonna do one from Japan. So this one is uh, is known as the the slit mouthed woman. Ooh. Yeah. So um, Kuchisaka Ona, uh, as told commonly in this legend, was a beautiful young girl that lived in a village in Japan, and she would dance around the village and ask the folk. Am I pretty? To which they would reply with an enthusiastic yes. This made her very confident in herself, and she was married to an intelligent samurai. She believed that she would be able to get away with an affair with a noble soldier. The samurai find out, and in anger, ask the soldier, Why her? Why my lady? Rather than all the other women in the village. To which he replied, for she is the most beautiful of the village. I cannot pass up such an opportunity. The samurai adored his honesty and acknowledged that he had the right response and reason. The soldier was poor, after all, and had not many positive things occur in his life. Although the soldier had proper intentions, the samurai's wife did not. She was the most beautiful woman of the village, and without that, she would be nothing. So the samurai angrily took his sword upon her face, slit her mouth from ear to ear, 
making her no longer beautiful. Soon after, she killed herself and was banished to an eternity of avenging her own pain. So that's, that's the legend. That, that's the history. So here's how this becomes urban legend. So modern day says that Kuchisaka Ona's spirit wanders the streets of Japan wearing a surgical mask to cover her disfigured face. She will approach you on the street and ask, do you think I'm pretty? If you answer yes, she will pull her mask down and show you her disfigured face and then slice your mouth to match hers Mm -hmm. with the response. You are now as pretty as I am. If you answer no, she will cut you in half with a giant pair of scissors that she carries. What a jerk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this will, you can't win. No. Here. So if, if she approaches you, it is recommended that you stay vague. So <laughs> when she says, am I pretty? You should say, man, you're average, yeah. you know, or so, so. And supposedly this confuses her, you know, giving you enough time to maybe get away. Right. She asks, you go, meh, and take off running. And take off running. (laughs) But if you don't answer and you try to turn around and leave, you will find her standing right in front of you. So she's quick. Persistent. Yeah. Yeah. She wants an answer. But Kuchisaka is said to almost exclusively pursue children, which I don't understand why. There was no children aspect to the original legend, but that's that's how it's morphed into this. So it's pretty scary, huh? You know, but it's obviously nothing more than folklore, right? Right. But in the 1970s, the legend had a rebirth. And it was, there were so many reports of a woman wearing a mask chasing children in the streets that they actually put more police on patrol looking for her, you know, trying to keep the community safe. Reasonable. Yeah. And in 2004, there were reports of a woman wearing a red surgical mask chasing children in South Korea. Hmm. Okay. Now, as recent as 2007, a coroner dug up into some old medical records and he found records of a woman who was chasing children in the late 70s and while doing so was struck by a car and killed. And in her autopsy report, it said her mouth had been ripped from ear to ear. Isn't that creepy? Yeah. So, makes you wonder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A little truth behind the legend. Yeah, that's right. So, so I thought that one that one was pretty cool and and kind of scary too. That is cool, you know. And I've I've heard the first part of that. I've heard the legend to it. Yeah. But what you were able to dig up with some of the 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 trueness yeah that i hadn't i hadn't heard before so that was that was really cool that you were able to find that and and you know as a side note if uh if you really like urban legends and maybe want to read up on some that you've never heard before um look up japanese urban legends because they can get really gruesome yeah this this one is is kind of mild in comparison to some of the ones i found but this one had the most information. They so. do have some really gruesome ones. Yeah. I know um, if you're on Twitter, there's a 41 Strange, I think is the name of the Twitter page. 
And a lot of times they will post uh, like Japanese folklore stuff. And a lot of it is pretty cool. And it's, it's like jumping off points for you. If you see it, then you can go dive into that research. And some of them are... Yeah. Really, they. I mean, they've got a ghost or a spirit for everything. When you think about how some some of the best scary movies have originated as movies in Japan, right? I mean, The Ring was right. a Japanese movie before it was, mm-hmm. you know, made into a an American movie, right? You know, well, we steal a lot. You we know? do. We steal a as lot a, as Americans. That's kind of what we do. Yep. But it, you know, for you this, know. it's all right. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> the one, the next one I've got is we're coming back to the states. We're going to go up to Detroit. So if you live in Detroit, you may have heard of this one. Um, this one is the legend of Nain Rouge, or the Nain Rouge, as they pronounced it. You, you do that pronounce on Google, yeah, and you always get somebody, you know, you get the Nain Rouge, and then you get somebody that's like, overdoes it, and it's like, thought, the Nain Rouge. I thought, uh, I thought Nicole Kidman was great in that. Oh, yeah, that was a great movie. Yeah. yeah. Oh wait, that's Moulin Rouge. Yeah, the same same thing. Same thing. <laughs> I don't think so. Moulin Rouge. <laughs> so, or as some of my family would pronounce this, the Nain Rogue. <laughs> so, that Nain Rogue is a it, it's a legendary creature from like French and American folklore. It's kind of tied together, yeah. hence the Nain Rouge. You can tell there's French in it, um, and it's kind of comparable to a hobgoblin. It supposedly appears as like a precursor to terrible events for the city. And the Nain Rouge appears as like a child-sized creature with either red or black fur boots. It's also said to have blazing red eyes and rotten teeth. Now, it's said to have attacked the first white settler of Detroit in 1701, Antoine de la Mothe. Cadillac, and I know I didn't say that right. I know I got Cadillac right. I was going to say, you got Cadillac I right. I got Cadillac right, but I guarantee I didn't get the rest right. Um, but soon after that, he lost his entire fortune. The creature is also said to have appeared on July 30th, 1763, before the Battle of Bloody Run, where 58 British soldiers were killed by Native Americans from Chief Pontiac's tribe. The small tributary of Detroit River, which still flows through what is now the Elmwood Cemetery, turned red with blood for days after this battle. And it is said he was seen dancing on the blankets, the blankets, sorry, dancing on the banks of the Detroit River. I might cut that out. I don't know. I may leave it in. (laughs) I just leave it. Yeah, I'll leave it. Some of the more famous sightings occurred in the days before 1805 fire which destroyed most of Detroit. And General William Hull reported a dwarf attack in the fog just before his surrender of Detroit in the War of 1812. Now, a woman claimed to have been attacked in 1884 and described the creature as resembling a baboon with a horned head, brilliant, restless eyes, and a devilish leer on its face. Another attack was reported in 1964. Other sightings include the day before the 12th Street Riot in 1967 and before a huge snow and ice storm of March 1976 when two utility workers are said to have seen what they thought was a child climbing a utility pole, which then jumped from the top of the pole and ran away as they approached. More recently, 
In the autumn of 1996, according to an article in the Michigan Believer, the Nain Rouge was spotted by two mm, admittedly drunken nightclub patrons who claimed to both have heard a strange cawing sound similar to a crow coming from a small hunched over man fleeing the scene of a car burglary. The creature was described as wearing what looked like a really nasty torn fur coat. Now, Detroit Beer Company, which is a brew pub in downtown Detroit, actually has a signature beer called Detroit. Detroit. <laughs> you didn't think you'd mess up that word. I didn't did think I would. <laughs> I've gotten some of these other ones, and I messed up Detroit. So Detroit. It's the Detroit Dwarf Lager, uh, named in honor of the Nain Rouge. And in 2010, a community-based movement began a tradition of a costumed community parade in the Midtown Corridor neighborhood, and it's called the March du Nain Rouge. This event is a revival of an early tradition in the legend of the Nain Rouge. At the conclusion of the parade, an effigy of this imp is destroyed, and it banishes the evil from the city for one more year. So each year, parade participants and spectators are encouraged to wear costumes so that when the Nain Rouge next returns, he will not recognize the persons who once again ousted him from the city limits and thus will not be able to seek personal vengeance. In 2011, the event featured a parade followed by this banishment, and it drew hundreds of guests. And both 2010 and 2011 events had an ad hoc organization calling itself the Friends of the Nain Rouge, and they protested the banishment of the parade arguing that the Nain Rouge is not to blame for the city's ills and that considering Detroit's population loss, no one should be banished from the city, particularly those who have been there the longest. Let's not banish this horned baboon. Right, right. Okay. So basically the gist of it is there is now, you know, a parade um, that banishes the Nain Rouge from Detroit city limits every year. And, this group that protests the banishment of the Nain Rouge, there are reports I read that people said it's not like a harbinger of doom, but it's a city protector because it shows up before all of these. So they're looking at it as, no, he's not the cause of it. He's warning you of the bad events that are about to take place. So he's he's like the gray man. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, there, I didn't see many reports of if if or how he had helped, but it's split down the middle of people that believe he brings the brings the pain. Yeah. Or people that believe he kind of warns you of impending doom. So, if you're from Detroit, which one have you heard? You know, have you heard that he brings the bad omens or that he's warning you. Yeah. I'm curious. You know, it's, you know, why not? I mean, you know, they, they, they do a whole festival for the Mothman. Right. You know, and, so and basically that they, they're getting to that point with, uh, this Nain Rouge parade and everything. Cause it apparently is growing every year. Yeah. So until they put a giant silver statue of him, Right there in town. You right. Know. It'll have they, to be they, painted red. They don't have though. anything on Point Pleasant. That's true. 
We got to go to that Point Pleasant thing. That is the craziest looking statue. I know. (laughs) All right. Moving right along. Um, So these next ones are creepy, but they're fun. And I just kind of grouped them all because they're they're kind of each one's kind of short. But these are urban legends that have uh, that have sprouted up from from video games. I, I really didn't know that there were this many of them. I mean, there's a lot of these. Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, I couldn't, I, I couldn't even begin. I, I mean, a, a whole show on this would probably not be all that interesting. So, you know, I grabbed some of the most interesting ones. Um, and hopefully some of these, these games are ones, at least a couple, are ones you've heard of. This so, first one I have played. Okay. I so know Adam's about this played one. this game. I have not played it, but I know what it is. Um, I, I'm not a big RPG game player, um, just because I don't, I, I can't sit and and involve myself in something that for that long. But I know people do. Um, this one is the Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind. Now, if you don't know, Morrowind is an expansive RPG, and to this day, is considered to be the best game in the Elder Scrolls series by a lot of its fans. It's an expansive online community where users can modify the game and add custom quests or characters, weapons, and armor. Legend has it that there's a very creepy and sinister mod to Morrowind that exists that could potentially drive a player insane. Now, this mod first showed up on the internet a few years ago, and it was originally thought to be a virus because when you loaded the game with the mod, your game would freeze on the title screen and would corrupt all the save files. However, somebody finally figured out that if you use the software DOSBox and you open the game in that, and DOSBox is software that you use to play older PC games on a newer PC, um, that the game would actually work. But it's different. So when the player starts the game with, all, with the mod, all the main characters in the game are already dead. Also, if you stand in one spot for too long, your health will slowly begin to dissipate. If you died from standing still too long, a new character reveals himself. And players took to calling him the assassin. Now, he appears to be a man, except his legs and his arms are much longer and are bent kind of like a spider. And players, they began to notice that if you you look closely... You can see the assassin around corners or scurrying up the side of walls, but only for brief moments. Another creepy element added to the game was that all the characters left living would come outside at night and just stand there. And when you would attempt to interact with them, the characters would just say, watch the sky. And characters that played this mod also discovered a new dungeon. Inside this dungeon was what players called the Hall of Portraits. And the hall is lined with picture frame, pictures framed uh, that are taken from the, the player's My Pictures folder. So we're talking about a PC game here. Mm-hmm. So you've got photos stored on your, on your computer and all that kind of stuff. The mod actually goes into your pictures file pulls out pictures and uh, implements in the game as framed pictures in this hall. 
That's creepy in that, and of itself. That is creepy. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it gets stranger. At the end of this hall, there's a locked door. Now, as of the writing of this particular article, um, no one has ever posted proof that they figured out how to open that door. But there are some unbelievable stories of players obsessed with trying to open it, and they play that modded game for days and days and days. And it, and if you know if you are an RPG player or if you know someone that is, that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. You you kind of get lost in these worlds, and you play and you play and you play. But some of them claim that after playing, they began to hallucinate, and they began to see the assassin in real life. Like when they would get up to go to the bathroom, they report out of the corner of their eye, seeing the assassin crawling up the wall or along the ceiling. Um, The creepiest part of this story is that the mod really does exist. You, you can do it. Okay. But I I would suggest you, you download this at your own risk. Cause anything that changes your gameplay this much, Mm -hmm. Uh, it it might be doing something else to your computer that you don't know about. Right. So right. so just be careful. But that's that's pretty creepy. Yeah. So a game that probably most everybody has heard of is Minecraft. Now, some players have found mysterious structures that appear on their maps that they didn't put there. Others even claim to have seen the source of the structures, which is a mysterious white-eyed version of the game's protagonist. Now, when you're playing Minecraft, you've got a character and you control everything in the world. There's Mm -hmm. other individuals in the world that are like farmers and villagers and whatever, priests and all that kind of stuff, zombies and creepers and all that stuff. But this one looks just like you, except there's no eyes. They're white. Okay. And apparently if you try to approach this person, he turns and walks away that you can't interact with him. But yet, he, uh, according to these people, he has built things into your world that, you know, you didn't put there. And, you know, they're strange structures and whatever. And then when you find him, he, he takes off. He runs away. Hmm. Now, they have named this character Herobrine. And so Herobrine began as a post on Minecraft forums way back in 2010. Way, way back. So, he it's... The post is accompanied by a f- kind of a blurry screenshot of a distant figure standing just on the edge of some fog. And the post states that the player had seen a copy of the default player character with no eyes. Okay. Anytime he tried to get closer, the figure would turn a corner or walk into the fog and disappear. It also, it, the post also reports seeing man-made structures randomly appearing in his world and that he had been contacted by other players who had also seen this figure. Now, after his first post, he reported being contacted by a user on, on the user board named Herobrine, who simply said, stop. So Notch, the game's creator, has said, you know, Herobrine does not exist and has never been a part of this game in any capacity. However, mm-hmm. when they came out with the the Minecraft beta 1.6.6 update, it included in the list of the patch notes, removed Herobrine. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a really good chance that because of the post, this was all a big joke 
Um, they just put it in there. Right. Um, but who knows? I mean, they could have snuck this in there and said, hey, you know, we're going to do this. It's going to mirror the character. We'll, we'll see what happens. And then, you know, they, they patched it and took it out just right. to increase. But it's kind of cool, though. Um, now, the last one of these, I, there is no way in the world I can talk about urban legends around video games without mentioning Polybius. Right. I mean, it's it's just impossible. If you go look at one of these lists, Polybius is number one on every one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so Polybius was an arcade game that mysteriously appeared in an arcade in Portland, Oregon in the early 1980s. The cabinet of the game was black. Everything except for the green joysticks and the logo at the top of the machine. And the game was a combination of Tempest and Pac-Man, which... If you're as old as I am, you remember playing Tempest in an arcade. It was, you know, kind of like a polygon type game, shooting, rolling around. And of course, everybody knows what Pac-Man is. So if you combine like this crazy shooting with a a maze puzzle type thing, hey, this is what Polybius supposedly was. I'm not as old as you, but I remember playing both of those on an arcade game. Yeah, well, they they were both around for a long time. Right. You know, hell, Pac-Man's still around. You can go into most places and find a Pac-Man machine, Mm -hmm. you know. Um but when you played it, it supposedly called all, caused all sorts of health problems, including amnesia, blackouts, nausea, seizures, headaches, night terrors. And in some cases, players were reported to have committed suicide not long after playing the game. It is also said that men dressed in all black would often be seen messing with the game, leading to some to speculate that the device was not a video game, but a, a government experiment. Now, whether or not this game actually existed, we don't know. Um, there's no real photographs of it. There's a screenshot of, like, the the main screen. Mm-hmm. Like, the screen that would be there if you walked up and you were getting ready to put a quarter in and play. But, you know, who knows? You know, you could, you could make that pretty easy. Oh, easily. sure. Um, but we do know that there was a glitchy prototype of the game Tempest uh, that caused nausea. And we also know that the United States government approached Atari to design a special version of one of its games in 1980. Now, when you go on Snopes.com and 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 look up Polybius, uh, it completely dismisses the legend as false, that this didn't happen. However, uh, it claims that it could be an updated version of an early 80s rumor that special agents collected information in our cage which uh, seems to confirm the quote-unquote men in black sightings approaching the video games. Right. So um, it's pretty interesting. And if you like that story, um, you can go to Astonishing Legends, and Scott and Forrest did an entire show on Polybius. Right. And it's pretty cool. I mean, they dig pretty deep. They, yeah. they have interviews with people who, who claim to have some knowledge about where the game was and you know, what happened to it and all this kind of stuff. Really, really interesting. In fact, that show is what got me hooked into Astonishing Legends. Oh, really? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty cool. It was the first one that I just happened to listen to. In fact, Amanda recap she found it and told me to go listen. Right. So, from it, you know, the rest is history on that. I just yeah, there you <laughs> started go. listening to everything I could. I was like, okay, this, I like this. Yep. So, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, so, definitely go check them out. Like Matt said, they dive deep, deep, deep into it. As so. they do with everything. Right. So, 
yeah, if, if you if you're into that kind of stuff and you like the idea of a video game conspiracy theory, boy, that Polybius is right up your alley. Yes, it is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going here um, because Adam's got some really cool ones to get into, um, and this is uh, this is one of the scariest ones I could find. And and I've I've known this one for a, a pretty good while. In fact, the first time I ever read this story was about I don't know two or three years ago. I guess uh, it was it popped up because they were in the process of of making this into a movie. And I think they did, but it's it's a YouTube movie. Yeah, it wasn't like mainstream. It, it's not like a Hollywood right. production. But anyway, uh, this is the story of the rake. So during the summer of two thousand three. Events in the northeastern United States, specifically around rural New York, uh, involving a strange human-like creature, it, it sparked, you know, a short local media interest before apparently a blackout was enacted, where all the information uh, that had been put out there was deleted, destroyed, whatever. So little or no information was left intact. And most of uh, online and written accounts of the creature were mysteriously destroyed. So, like I said, it's primarily focused in rural New York State and one appearance in in, a, in Idaho. But self-proclaimed witnesses told stories of their encounters with a creature of unknown origin. Uh, emotion ranged from extremely traumatic levels of fright and discomfort to an almost childlike sense of playfulness and curiosity. While the published versions are no longer on record, memories remain so that the people that were involved in these sightings began to collaborate and and share memories and stories and try to get some answers as to what they what they saw. So in 2006, this collaboration of these eyewitnesses accumulated nearly two dozen documents dating between the 12th century and the present day spanning four different continents about this particular creature. In almost every case, the stories were identical. Um, and, and this person said that when contacting a member of this group, they were able to get some excerpts from a book that they did eventually publish about the rake. So the first one is, is a suicide note from 1964. And I don't normally like doing this, but I'm going to read this verbatim. Uh, just so that you can you you can get the uh, the vantage point that I had from reading this the first time. As I prepare to take my life, I feel it necessary to assuage any guilt or pain I have introduced through this act. It is not the fault of anyone other than him. For once I awoke, I felt his presence, and once I awoke, and I saw his form. Once again, I awoke and I heard his voice, and looked into his eyes. I cannot sleep without fear of what I might next awake to experience. I cannot ever wake. Goodbye. Now, this note was found in a wooden box along with two empty envelopes addressed to people named William and Rose. And there was one loose letter without an envelope that read, Dearest Lenny, I have prayed for you. He spoke your name. So, the, the next entry dates back all the way to 1880. And this is a journal entry uh, translated from Spanish. And this says, I have experienced the greatest terror. I have experienced the greatest terror. 
I have experienced the greatest terror. I see his eyes when I close mine. They are hollow, black. They saw me and pierced me. His wet hand. I will not sleep. His voice. And then the text becomes unreadable. 1691. This was a ship's log. He came to me in my sleep. From the foot of my bed, I felt a sensation. He took everything. We must return to England. We shall not return here again at the request of the rake. Now, this last one, this, is, this was the first story that I found when I, when I first came across this legend of the rake. And now, this one's creepy, and it's pretty scary. So if you've got kids with you listening, just, you know, listener discretion. Because this story kind of creeped me out when I first read it. Through. Earmuffs, kids. Yeah. Three years ago, I had just returned from a trip to Niagara Falls with my family for the 4th of July. We were all very exhausted after a long day of driving, so my husband and I put the kids right to bed and called it a night. At about 4 a.m., I woke up thinking my husband had gotten up to use the restroom. I used the moment to steal back the sheets, only to wake him in the process. I apologized and told him I thought he had gotten out of bed. When he turned to face me, he gasped and pulled his feet up from the end of the bed so quickly his knee almost knocked me out of the bed. He then grabbed me and said nothing. After adjusting to the dark for a half second, I was able to see what caused the strange reaction. At the foot of the bed, sitting and facing away from us, there was what appeared to be a naked man or a large hairless dog of some sort. Its body positioning was disturbing and unnatural, as if it had been hit by a car or something. For some reason, I was not instantly frightened but more concerned as to its condition. At this point, I was somewhat under the assumption that we were supposed to help him. My husband was peering over his arm and knee, tucked into the fetal position, occasionally glancing at me before returning to the creature. In a flurry of motion, the creature scrambled around the side of the bed and then crawled quickly in a flailing sort of motion right along the bed until it was less than a foot from my husband's face. The creature was completely silent for about 30 seconds, just looking at my husband. The creature then placed its hand on its knee and ran into the hallway leading to the kids' rooms. I screamed and ran for the light switch, planning to stop him before he hurt my children. When I got to the hallway, the light from the bedroom was enough to see it crouching and hunched about 20 feet away. He turned around and looked directly at me, covered in blood. I flipped the switch on the wall and I saw my daughter, Clara. The creature ran down the stairs while my husband and I rushed to help our daughter. She was very badly injured and spoke only once more in her short life. She said, he is the rake. My husband drove his car into a lake that night while rushing our daughter to the hospital. They did not survive. Being a small town, news got around pretty quickly. The police were helpful at first, and the local newspaper took a lot of interest as well. However, the story was never published, and local television news never followed up. For several months, my son Justin and I stayed in a hotel near my parents' house. After we decided to return home, 
I began looking for answers myself. I eventually located a man in the next town over who had a similar story. We got in contact and began talking about our experiences. He knew of two other people in New York who had seen the creature we now refer to as the rake. It took the four of us about two solid years of hunting on the internet and writing letters to come up with a small collection of what we believe to be accounts of the rake. None of them gave any details, history, or follow-up. The one journal had an entry involving the creature in its first three pages and never mentioned it again. A ship's log explained nothing of the encounter, saying only that they were told to leave by the rake. That was the last entry in that log. There were, however, many instances where the creature's visit was one of a series of visits with the same person. Multiple people also mentioned being spoken to, my daughter included. This led us to wonder if the rake had visited any of us before our last encounter. I set up a digital recorder near my bed and left it running all night, every night, for two weeks. I would tediously scan through the sounds of me rolling around in bed each day when I woke up. By the end of the second week, I was quite used to the occasional sound of sleep uh, while blurring through it through the recording at eight times the normal speed. This took almost an hour every day. On the first day of the third week, I thought I heard something different. What I found was a shrill voice. It was the rake. I can't listen to it long enough to even begin to transcribe it. I haven't let anyone listen to it yet. All I know is that I've heard it before, and I now believe that it spoke when it was sitting in front of my husband. I don't remember hearing anything at the time, but for some reason, the voice on the recorder immediately brings me back to that moment. The thoughts that must have gone through my daughter's head make me very upset. I have not seen the rake since he ruined my life, but I know that he has been in my room while I slept. I know and fear that one night I'll wake up to see him staring at me. Wow. I know. And, you know, the the, the rake is a, is a really scary story, mm-hmm. but the accounts of it, appear to be somewhat legitimate right um it's it's not something that just came about um you know even if it is truly just a legend it it wasn't something that is necessarily modern day right you know so what's real and what's not real we don't know and i think that's what makes for a great urban legend sure you know sure um you know, you get these eyewitness accounts, but you don't really have names. You know, you get a lot of documented dates and things like that. Um, and I think that's really what's at the heart of an urban legend. You mm-hmm. know, just like the hook man, you yeah. know, you don't have names, you don't have dates, you don't have locations per se, or they're vague, you know, rural New York. You right. ever look at a map? There's <laughs> a lot of there's rural. a lot of rural New York, right. you know. Um but it makes it cool and it makes it mysterious and it makes it creepy and it makes it kind of scary and it makes you kind of look twice when you go to bed at night. Right. Um, and that's what a really good scary story is all about. So mm-hmm. um, sharing that with you guys. And, you know, again, it's not something I typically do. I, I, I don't just like reading to you folks, but this stuff, you know, I really felt like if you want to get the gist of this story, if you really want to feel like what I felt the first time I read it, 
you need to hear it verbatim. Oh, yeah. Sometimes know? sometimes you, you need to hear it, you yeah. know, like from the horse's mouth almost. And since so. since Morgan Freeman and James Earl Jones weren't available mm-hmm. and, and we couldn't afford them. Um, no kidding. You get to hear me tell it. Yay. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I love that story. I mean, I can remember the first time I read it, it really made me uneasy. Oh, yeah. You know, and, you know, even now, um, if I'm laying awake and I'm just, my head's just kind of going through stuff, processing stuff, every so often in a dark room, I'll remember this story, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's stuck with me for the last few years. Sure. So. It's one of those things that will come back to haunt you. Oh, you yeah. Know? Oh, yeah. And one of the, we research a lot of things. So there's stuff in and out of our brains all the time. Like I've said before, there's only a finite amount of space up there. And sometimes I'll learn so much, I forget how to get home the next day. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there's some things like the rake that stick with you and uh-huh. they always will. Yeah. Now, the one I got is not quite as scary. Yeah. But. But I had, I had never heard of this. Well, and that makes it even cooler that you've never heard of it. So um, Amanda and Adam both had have read about this and heard about it. And I don't know if there was a conspiracy that they were going to keep it away from me. I heard Amanda <laughs> mention it like two days ago. And then Adam tells me, I'm definitely doing the melon heads. I was like, wait, wait, what? Was I kept out of the loop yeah. on something? <laughs> Actually, no. That in one time that we didn't conspire against you, believe yeah. it or not. So I purposefully didn't didn't look it up. I didn't Google it. Adam hasn't told me. Amanda didn't tell me. So I I'm with you guys. If you've never heard it, neither have I. So we're gonna sit back and we're gonna let Adam tell us what yeah. the heck a melonette is. Y'all's about to get learned. <laughs> All right. So. The melon heads. And, you know, when you first hear it, no, it's not that uh, that thing. Hey, melon head. It's not I that, thought it was know. a candy. No, like, it's lemon heads. Yeah, I figured maybe they came out with a new one. Like, tastes like cantaloupe or something? <laughs> yeah. It's like sour cantaloupe. Now, this, uh, this, this one is, it's one of those things that once you get into it, you think you know it. And you know the like one of the origin stories and one path that it takes. But the further I got into it, the more there was. So what I'm going to do is there's several origin stories that I'm going to go over. And then there's several encounters with the melon heads that I'm going to go over. I have no theories after reading, reading all this and, you know, digesting all of this. I have no theories. But we'll see what you guys have. Now, the source of the melon heads comes from Kirtland, Ohio, and it's an area near Cleveland. Now, there's a road there called Wisner Road, and it said that this next tale occurred at a home in the woods just off that road. The bridge on Wisner Road there is the location where most of the sightings were reported. Back in the 1800s, there was this unlicensed doctor by the name of Crow. Now, he adopted several orphans who all had the same problem, hydrocephalus. If you don't know what hydrocephalus is, it's basically water on the brain. It's where the lining of your brain, can it absorbs a lot of water and you don't flush it out. Normally, your blood flowing through will remove a lot of the water 
that's in the lining of your brain. Well, hydrocephalus people can't do that. So usually they have an overabundance and it can cause mental issues, learning problems because it presses on the brain. Right. So it's a very bad thing. Now, these children were supposedly abused by Crow. And in his attempts to fix their problem, he only made it worse by injecting more water into their heads. It was said he also experimented on their bodies and left them horribly deformed. The children eventually rebelled and killed the doctor and burned the home, and then they fled into the woods. Now, alternatively to this same story, basically the same thing, but it said that Crow got into a confrontation with his wife, who the children adored. Now, she fell and hit her head on a wardrobe. The children, thinking Crow had murdered her, but she was just unconscious, swarmed and beat him to death. They then set fire to the house and unwittingly burned Mrs. Crow alive. Now, over several hundred years, the same bloodlines of this handful of children is said to have been interbred, and the enlarged head and deformed body became ingrained into the genes. They survived in the woods, and reports have been told ever since of these, quote, melon heads emerging from the trees. Now, some say they're placid and just simply watch traffic, and others have reported actually being attacked by these creatures. Now, another version. So there's an abandoned building near Felt Mansion in Holland, Michigan. The government insists that it was part of the Dunes Correctional Facility, a low-security prison that was shut down. Some locals, however, believe that it was once the site of the Junction Insane Asylum. Now, the Allegheny County Historical Society has claimed that the asylum never existed and is just part of local lore. But, you know, maybe it did exist, and maybe it did have something to do with the melon heads. So it, it says that these children that had hydrocephaly, they, they were at this insane asylum, and they were mentally and physically abused by the staff. Some say they killed the abusive doctors, feasted on them, scattered their bones in Felt Mansion, and fled into the woods. Some say they just escaped, but no matter how it was that they got out, the story goes that they continued to live in the woods, and when they eventually became feral, and they mutated into what is now known as the Melonheads. Now, another story from... Another one. Another one. <laughs> from the Trumbull area, holds that in colonial times, a family was accused of witchcraft and was banished from the settlement. They were forced to live in the surrounding woods far removed from society. Since they could not interact with anybody else in the town, they were forced to breed with each other to continue the bloodline. Now, this resulted in the children being deformed, and then they continued breeding themselves and slowly turned into the melon heads over years and years of inbreeding. Okay, so another version. <laughs> we just keep getting these versions because... They they don't stop, Matt. They don't stop. It, Somebody, somebody's got to have seen, you know, these these folks with these uh, enlarged heads, and well, and now they're just well, they, they're just coming up with 
stories to explain where they came from? I, I guess, but I do have, <laughs> I, I've got some sightings we'll get into. All right, cool. So the next version of this is, it's kind of more straightforward. And there was this top secret government project, which was doing experiments out in the wilds of Lake County. And who knows for what reason, they never really specifically say they just, you know, government experiments like yeah. they always do. Oh, yeah. Now, in this scenario, the subjects underwent some sort of drastic experiments on their brains, and it caused them to become ballooned and deformed. Now, these subjects over time crave some sort of contact with the outside world and are said to have escaped to make their way to civilization. Now, unfortunately, they soon realized that civilization did not want anything to do with them and their hideous looks. So these freaks trudged back into the wilderness to live in seclusion. Now, the government, not wanting to create a widespread panic, did what any, quote, sinister government does in this story and covered it up. Now, you can believe that if you want to, but, you know, yeah. it it's... Conspiracy theory number three. <laughs> right, right. And that's the thing. You know, you've got... You got all these, but you you can't have a story like the Melonheads without some government cover up, government conspiracy, and all that. Oh, so yeah. it was needed. I had to get it in there. <laughs> <laughs> now let's get on to some of the sightings. Now this first sighting is kind of a long one, and I'm going to read the tale kind of verbatim here, kind of like you did, just so you know the story and. It explains one of these government things. There's a group of teenagers who were traveling through this prime melonhead territory in Wycliffe, Ohio, in 1964. And they passed by one of these creatures standing on the side of the road, and it was just staring at them. They slowed the car down to get a better look at the creature, and it scurried off into the wilderness. Well, the teens decided to give chase. So they made their way through the brush and, and trees until they allegedly came to a clearing in which sat this old-fashioned house. And there was an older couple sitting leisurely on the porch with several of these melon heads kind of milling about them in kind of this weird scene, you know, country folks sitting on the porch and you got a bunch of melon heads just kind of wandering around the property and on the porch and all that. Now, one of the teens asked the man what was going on. And he told this really bizarre tale. He told the teens that he had once been a nuclear scientist during World War II and that the radiation he had constantly been exposed to caused his children to be deformed with this big bulbous heads. He claimed that the government had paid him to keep quiet about it and relocated him into this remote area along with his wife and the mutated children where they would be kept away from normal society. So the man made them promise not to tell of the location of this house, and he sent them on their way. Of course, teens being teens, they apparently immediately told all of their friends about how they had run into the legendary Melonheads, and a group of them went down that way to find them again. As they drove along the lonely road towards the house, they then apparently were stopped by a large group of police officers. And that was kind of surprising because they were in the middle of nowhere. So the cops asked them what they were doing out there. And when the subject of the melon heads came up, the police 
adamantly insisted that this was just an urban legend and that they had better get back. So when the teens refused, they were then allegedly taken to the police station. Their parents came to pick them up. The teens would later claim that they had been doing nothing wrong and that they had just been driving, minding their own business, which made this a little more suspect to a cover-up. So that's one supposed run-in with kind of an origin story in it. Yeah, you saw nothing. Right. You'll see nothing. These are not the melon heads you're looking for. <laughs> so another one is... That's a Star Wars quote from somebody who claims not to be a Star Wars fan. Yeah, I, I figured I needed to make up for all my Star Wars bashing on in the group the other day. So there you go, Star Wars fans. May the Force be with you. Or whatever. I don't know. Shit. <laughs> So, (laughs) in Weird U.S., your travel guide to America's local legends and best-kept secrets, there was a man named Tony who recounts his encounter with a melon head in Chardon, Ohio. Now, Tony was driving with his family down Chillicothe Road, and I think I'm pronouncing that right, when they came to a section of the road with fields on both sides. There was an irrigation ditch separating the road from the fields. And that's where Tony spotted him. He said, I looked out my window and saw him, a melon head. He or it was running next to the ditch. We were going about 45 to 50 miles per hour, and the melon head was actually keeping up with us. Tony goes on to describe the melon head's clothes as ripped brown pants, white t-shirt with red stains, and appeared about five foot seven with light brown skin, a really large head and two holes where the ears should have been. He said the creature jumped into the woods as their car went around a curve in the road. So kind of, you know, it's sticking with the classic look of the melon head, large, large bulbous head, normal size body, you know, but no ears, all that. So just weird. Now, another sighting or whatever is there's a lot of streets in Connecticut that are known colloquially as Dracula Drive. Now, the melon heads are said to lurk around those roads. In Fairfield, Dracula Drive is a nickname for Velvet Street. Now, that's where Megan O'Connell was when something terrifying happened. According to Weird New England, Megan and a group of her friends decided They wanted to do something fun after a high school football game in the early 1980s or so. Megan's friend Debbie had a Ford Granada, and they all piled in in search of an adventure. They ended up on Velvet Street, where they got out of the car to look for some of the melon heads. As they searched the woods, they heard Debbie's car turn on behind them. Stunned, they ran back to where it was parked. The headlights flashed, and suddenly the car was barreling toward them. They took cover, and as the car drove by, they saw its occupants. Two creatures that could almost pass for humans if it were not for their bulbous heads. So apparently this one stole cars. So <laughs> Melonhead car thief. Right? Melonhead car thief. <laughs> so we got... Grand theft melonhead. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we got one more, and this one comes from Weird Michigan. It, it Kind of a first-person encounter. Now, Kelly Top Bedrosian claims that she was exploring the grounds 
of the then-abandoned Felt Mansion. Back to that yeah. Felt Mansion. With her friends one night, when she saw a man in the distance. He had an unusually large head, but she wasn't scared for some reason. Then he started walking toward them. And she says, not knowing who this man could be, my friend yelled hello to try and be friendly. But all we got was this loud grunt, and the man continued to walk toward them, but now at a faster pace. At this point, the same idea hit all of the friends, and we all started sprinting toward our car. We scrambled in and peeled out of the parking lot at full speed, not slowing down until we were several miles from the mansion. So, what I what I have learned is that nobody has been physically attacked, but they have been threatened by these melon heads. Yeah, or had their car stolen. Or had their car stolen. And see that they didn't go on to say whether or not they got the car back. Where did where did they learn how to drive? Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe the maybe the guy who worked as a nuclear physicist taught him how to drive. You know. <laughs> So that has a whole bunch of origin stories, and I only read a, a few of them, and there's a whole bunch of sightings, and I only read a few of them that I kind of found interesting. But you can go back and, I mean, if you want to dig deeper into that, you can, because yeah. there's a lot of information on it, a lot of other versions that you can read, and you may know a different version. So, I don't. I didn't. Need, I didn't know any of these versions. Right. But, you know, to play, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. The, uh, the idea of a, a rural family that somehow managed to have, uh, you know, a number of children that suffered from hydrocephaly is not unheard of. Right. And the fact that maybe they stayed kind of, um, Secluded from society, also not completely unheard of. Right. Um, you know, parents would would protect a child that was different. Right. You know, because kids are mean. Mm-hmm. You know, you make fun of what you don't understand when you're a kid. That's what kids do. So the idea that there is a possibility that there's, a, you know, a man and a, and a woman living in seclusion with multiple children that you know have hydrocephaly doesn't doesn't sound all that bizarre right you know it's strange but i mean on the surface you could imagine that it could happen right however hydrocephaly doesn't cause a giant expansion of the cranium bingo (laughs) you know so that's what is so strange about this is that people are reporting that they've seen these people Mm -hmm. with these big heads right and that that doesn't really fit right that there's that this could be possible and there's you know there's been reports of melon heads since the 1800s yeah i mean so you never know i mean you know you look it up there i mean there are maladies that you know could cause somebody's head to be enlarged Mm -hmm. so for sure right so i don't know that's kind of that's kind of crazy, right? But if you live around the Kirtland, Ohio area, and have heard of the melon heads, let us know. If you've seen the melon heads, right? Yeah. Please let us know. I mean, I, I can imagine if you live in that area. I mean, I've got a, I've got a friend that you know that grew up not too far from Point Pleasant, right? 
you know, the the Mothman. This is the twice we've mentioned the Mothman. <laughs> we might have to do that episode now. Uh, I'm telling you, you know, but uh, you know, she was she was well versed. I mean, she's not from Point Pleasant, but she's from close enough that she knew. So if if you're from that area, chances are you've heard that story, right? Especially with this many backstories mm-hmm. to it. So uh, yeah, if, I mean, if you're from around there and you've heard this story or you know more, yeah, I'd, yeah, we'd love to hear that. Oh, please do. Yeah, yeah. email us. You know. Uh, Graveyard Tales Podcast at gmail.com. Let us know. Right. Right. All right. So um, we hope you enjoyed our uh, our second urban legend. Urban you know, legends we, do. That's right. <laughs> Part do. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, we, we had a lot of fun researching some of these. And un, unbelievable to me, I, I didn't come across really all that many that I found the last time we did this. Right. You know, found a lot of new ones. And, and the urban you know, legend gods were smiling in our favor. Yeah. And, you know, found found a whole bunch that, you know, I just for the sake of time, you know, couldn't use. But they were still pretty cool. Right. Um, but so I, I just want to mention this real quick. I'm excited about next week's episode. Yeah. So I'm, we're not going to tell you all what it is yet. If if you're in our Facebook group or Twitter, you know, we tease to it every week. That's about right. At the beginning of the week. So you'll find out then, or you'll find out when you hear it, but I'm excited. I just wanted to tell you that I'm excited about this next one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty excited too. So be sure and check out our website at graveyardpodcast.com. There you can find more information about us, links to purchase our merchandise, become a Patreon, and of course, listen to the show. Uh, Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Graveyard Tales. And join our Facebook group to interact with us, share stories, and to get inside info on upcoming episodes. As always, please rate and review us on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. We'll see you soon.